Today, Charles Hazelwood joins the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra with the pianist Andrew Zielinski for an exploration of Beethoven's third piano concerto. first forte, that is loud passage, from the first movement of Mozart's piano concerto in C minor, Kirchel 491, the third from last concerto he was to write, written and premiered in the spring of 1786. Performing that brief extract with me, and indeed with me for the whole of today's programme, I'm very pleased to welcome the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, and indeed the pianist, Andrew Zielinski. Now, the main meat of our exploration today concerns Beethoven's third piano concerto. But it's terribly important, first of all, to look at where the concerto form was at the point that he inherited it, and in particular to look at the C minor concerto of Mozart, which had a huge influence upon Beethoven. Now, the big challenge for all composers of the classical era is how to structure the music in a concerto as opposed to a symphony. A model had been laid down which involved the principle of ritonello, in other words, the principle of returns. The orchestra lays out an idea, the soloist can decorate and go off on a flight of fancy of one sort or another, then the orchestra come back in with a ritonello, return. And you need to look no further than the great series of concertos known as the Four Seasons by Antonio Vivaldi to hear time and time again examples of that ritonello form. Mozart knew that something more extensive was needed. Mozart sets himself the challenge of getting away from the ritonello, the archaic concerto form, into something which is more expansive, more redolent, more available for symphonic development, where, in this instance, the piano and the orchestra could engage in something resembling debate, more integrated structure, in effect. Then, in the process, he's got to find a clear role for the piano, well, a key to this is how Mozart comes up with and then organizes his themes. The main one in this first movement of the C minor concerto is specifically constructed with several different aspects or contours. It's not just a neat little tune which can only appear in full again and again. 
Firstly, there's an arpeggio, clean and open. Immediately after that, we get disturbing jumps of what is a diminished seventh interval. That's a leap of seven notes from one to the other, and the top one just slightly flattened to make it diminished, and therefore much more anguished. Those uncomfortable leaps become something of a mantra, like someone striving for the light. So, as you can hear, a multi-layered theme, certainly rich enough to launch a symphony and definitely ripe for development. You see, if Kirchel 491, that is this Mozart concerto, were a symphony, following the opening statement of the first theme, which we just played, and still very much in C minor, Mozart, in the interests of variety, would then have devised some cunning means of shifting the tonality to its nearest relative in the major. flat major, ladies and gentlemen. The nearest relative key to C minor. So now we're in this new key of E flat major, Mozart can announce his second subject or theme. So, we've heard the second subject in the orchestra, but in a concerto, what does that leave the piano to do? The fact is there is no example in any Mozart piano concerto where the second subject, the second main theme, is announced by the orchestra before the piano's had it. So, of course, the piano has to come in organically and gently, certainly in this case, and find a way of taking us forward, toying with themes, changing the key to the appropriate key to announce the second subject himself.
So, as you heard, the orchestra remained, for the first part of that anyway, robustly in C minor, the home key. Then the piano emerged organically into the slipstream, toying with some of the melodic ideas, and from there, taking us into the new key, the new idea. Let's just see how much this second subject, this second theme, as announced by the piano, relates to the first. The energy on the leap, on the end of the phrase, listen to it in the second subject... And here we find it in the first subject. So what is there, a leap of seven notes, as I discussed earlier, becomes a leap of an octave in the piano in the second subject. So these two themes are chips of the same block, albeit very different coloured ones, but they can easily interrelate. We can hear what's going on. The piano is the gel which binds us all, but also something of a master of ceremonies. Mozart can suggest Ritonelli, these returns, without actually being so clunky. The material is spread out deftly between sections of the orchestra and the soloists. Another great hallmark of Mozart's mature concertos is that you know invariably where you are. There are sections or returns clearly signposted with cadential figures, trills in the piano, kind of ends of sentences in musical terms. So, what about Beethoven? Well, it's clear that he was a big admirer of Mozart's C minor, and in fact Mozart's only other minor uh, piano concerto, the D minor. And he clearly takes the C minor concerto as a starting point for his own concerto, number three. Beethoven finds his own solutions to the big classical era concerto problems and creates some of his own problems to solve. And in so doing, he's creating a fresh template for the great romantic concertos to come.
Well, we just played the whole of the orchestral exposition of Beethoven's third piano concerto. The first big problem that Beethoven sets himself is that he creates an orchestral prelude which is symphonic. Both main subjects are stated. What on earth will be the piano's role? We shall see. So let's explore this symphonic orchestral exposition. Listen to the subdued tension with which it begins. It's quiet like Mozart, and it has a broken chord figuration not unlike Mozart. And listen to the third bar, that long, short, long, short, long, a motif which becomes glue to bind the whole movement together. And then a wind answering phrase. Listen particularly to the anguish on the third chord they play, a real piece of Beethovenian DNA, which will be important later on. And you heard there a third, longer phrase which binds it all together. It immediately begins to change key. Still in C minor. And we found E flat major. So, we're in E-flat, the relative major of C minor. Yeah, but surely it must be out of place in an orchestral exposition to a classical era concerto. What he's doing actually is paving the way for his second subject, which the orchestra are going to announce. You ask, what will the piano have left to do? And from E-flat major, he then gives us the second subject briefly in a shimmering, soft C major. Just hear how different the colour is.
Did you notice that abrupt return to C minor? It's almost a sense that Beethoven is guiltily, somewhat with his tail between his legs, just obscuring his mistake and getting the orchestra back to the home key as quickly as he can. So anyway, it's very clear that Beethoven is thinking symphonically here. We've had both subjects, the second in the related key, remember, the relative major. Has he, we ask ourselves, strayed too far in his introduction? Has Beethoven learned nothing from Mozart? You ask again, what will the piano have left to do? It's interesting, some commentators have had the temerity to point out that this is actually a mistake. Well, anyone who knows anything very much about Beethoven will know that if he spotted a mistake, which surely he would have done, he would have gone back and reworked it to excise the problem. And it concludes with immense finality. Nothing here that the piano can just organically emerge from. He's in the business of hinting at potential in the introduction, a constant process of development suggesting possibilities which the piano will take on and explore in full later on. Well, let's now look at the role of the piano coming in for the first time. What do we hear? Not by any means just a straight piece of repetition from our first section. It seizes the first subject and makes it its own. Where Mozart, when the piano joined in his exposition, was warmly, gently embracing, this is potent and hair-raising. sense of the piano as a really distinctive new voice. He's not going to indulge in the music we're just going to play merely in sequences. There's always something new to be said in response to the orchestra. And listen, just to, uh, sort of six or eight bars in, to the martial response which the orchestra engenders. Strong and forthright. Remember, this concerto was written 1800 to 1. Europe was by this time war-torn. There must have been a very martial atmosphere, certainly very different from the atmosphere surrounding Mozart back in 1786. And in addition, it's worth bearing in mind that Beethoven had grown to dislike the sensuousness, as he put it, of Mozart. He said rather dismissively of pianists performing Mozart concerti that they go up and down with their long-practiced passage work. Putsch, putsch, putsch.
and there's the second subject. But this time, you give a sense, you'll get a sense that it is properly arrived at. Beethoven's just, just taken a little bit longer to really reinforce the sense of that new key. It's a brilliant way of underlining the soloist's right in Beethoven's concerto to command the shape of this first section, the exposition. The orchestra's anticipation, you remember in the opening where it abruptly reined itself in, remember? Slithering, guiltily crawling back to the tonic, to the home key, C minor. It's in a way a show of deference in advance. And in a way, if in Mozart the pianist is something like a master of ceremonies, well here he's allowed to be the architect. Well, Beethoven now eases his way into his development section. Just a quick recap of what sonata form is. Effectively, all first movements of this period subscribe to sonata form, which is in three basic sections. You get the exposition, where the ideas are first expressed, a middle section called the development, where those ideas are chewed over and explored and developed in all sorts of different ways, and then a third and final section known as the recapitulation, when all the ideas are stated more or less in their original form, once again bringing the movement to its close. So, as Beethoven eases his way, as I say, into this middle section, his development section, we get the first of what will be a sustained use of the figure that we heard in the first subject, which sounded like this. And here it becomes a constant feature of the texture in the development. Now let's see how he uses that particular rhythm, that long, short, long, short, long, interweaving it between different parts of the orchestra and the piano. It's a very Mozartian idea, but the degree to which Beethoven labours this rhythmic DNA is way beyond anything Mozart would have done. Shortly afterwards, you get a big blazing orchestral entry with the first subject material in glorious technicolour. This must surely signal the beginning of our third and final section, the recapitulation. A return to the first idea. But this is Beethoven, so of course he continues to show new possibilities, to continue to develop.
course, Beethoven is not above using signposts, just like Mozart does. The trill leading to the cadence, remember, that we showed you in Mozart's C minor concerto first movement. Beethoven does a very similar thing, prefacing the return, the final return, before the cadenza, the big solo spot, which is nearly at the conclusion of this movement. So we're into cadenza time now. Um, this movement of the three is the one that has the major cadenza. In other words, this is a point where the orchestra sit back and rest, and the soloist is, as, is given an opportunity to explore all material relating to, pertaining to the piece, and also to show off some fantastical virtuosic pyrotechnics at the same time. Well, it's a good chance to bring in Andrew Zielinski sitting here quietly. Uh, the cadenza you choose to play is the one I think Beethoven wrote in 1806 to accompany this piece, Andrew. Why is that? Um, I feel even though, of course, the cadenza conventionally is the sort of showpiece, as Charles has said, for the pianist, I do think it has to reflect the uh, important aspects of the, the music surrounding it. Uh, it's such a dramatic, uh, dark first movement, very strong rhythmic drive, and I think this aspect is highlighted in this particular cadenza, but also it goes off on some amazing harmonic journeys. Um, goes to very remote keys, A-flat minor, F-sharp minor. These are keys remote to C minor, which I feel is the essence of Beethoven. It's that, that daring, that, that visionary quality that we all love about all periods of his music. So following this extraordinary cadenza, which we'll save up for our performance for you to enjoy... We get a short coda, like an end piece. One of the first ideas he had for the concerto when he began thinking about it, simply the theme picked out on the timpani. The long, short, long, short element of the theme, of course. It's that rhythmic idea, coupled with the piano being architect, that just gradually, slowly but surely, puts the orchestra into a kind of stupor which leads to a kind of climactic splendor and then the movement can end. Well, the choice of key for Beethoven's slow movement comes as a total shock. It's in E major. What we have here is a very simple aria-like slow movement, marked largo, meaning really quite slow. If you think about it, Mozart could never have written a slow movement as slow and sustained as this. 
Even in the 14 years that run between Mozart's C minor concerto and Beethoven's, the fortepiano had already made extra huge strides in terms of its power and its ability to sustain. So Beethoven sets this movement in three simple parts. It's a ternary structure, which is initiated and presided over by the piano. orchestra join, it immediately takes up the piano idea, as you'd expect, and begins to flesh it out and develop it. Let me show you some of that. At this point, the bass instruments of the orchestra then very deliberately begin to play with the dotted rhythm from the piano's very first bar. Da, 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 that dotted rhythm. It's yet another example of Beethoven taking the tiniest, minutest little rhythmic idea and amplifying it in a way, using it like glue to bind together the whole experience. Notice how Beethoven loves to draw out his cadences just to prolong the sense of delicious agony. Now, in the middle section, as I said, this is a ternary structured movement, so we have our first section, which has been delving into. In the middle section of the movement, the orchestra becomes very much the event, and the piano simply a delicate accompanimental tracery, just simply arpeggios. You have to remember that back in 1800, this is a highly unusual way of writing music. It's much more common, you know, in the later great romantic piano concertos to hear the piano consigned to a deliciously decorative accompanimental role. So, of course, what Beethoven has learned here from Mozart, I suppose, particularly, is this sense of the special ingredient, the special way that one might pair the piano with certain elements of the orchestra. Here, a ravishing and very unlikely duet of flute and bassoon. 
And so we find our way into the last of the three little sections contained in Beethoven's slow movement. Right, I want to play you now the forthright chord that ends this slow movement. It's brazen E major. And the great thing about the way that Beethoven has orchestrated this chord is that even though actually the highest note in the chord is an E in the top flute, in fact, the G sharp, which rests at the top of the first violins, stands out loud and clear And this is exactly the pivot which Beethoven uses to get us from the extremes of E major, slow movement, back to C minor for our rondo. Now the piano starts with a G natural and then an A flat, which is otherwise known as a G sharp. But listen now to the bass note that goes underneath the second of those two notes, the A flat note. At the bottom there is a G. What a delicious piece of dissonance. That colour is all over the final movement, our last act of the concerto. It sort of speaks of anguish, doesn't it? And it's also derived directly from the third chord that the woodwinds had in the first movement of this concerto. I'll just remind you of that. Interestingly, that idea is also, on some level, drawn from Mozart's opening idea from the first movement of his concerto. Just to remind you of how the first three notes of that concerto begin. There is an A-flat, strong as anything, in the third bar. So where could I take that, asks Beethoven to himself, answer, into a movement whose dancey character is constantly belied by the poison Beethoven injects by making that A-flat sit over a G, in other words, a ninth. This is a rondo, remember, in other words, a movement where the theme comes round and round any number of times. So, of course, it's a wound that we'll be worried away at again and again.
So as I say, the structure of this movement is rondo form. You get one principal theme which keeps coming back again and again, itself not unlike a ritonello. But it's in between these moments of return that the piano takes us off on some wonderful flights of fantasy. We get a stern martial response from the orchestra just a little bit later, very much like the one we heard in the first movement. Again, this sense of constant unity, unity, unity. Something that occurs in one movement is sure to occur, even in the most subliminal fashion, in another There's a central episode which is full of kind of Schubertian warmth and it's in the key A-flat major. Remember the significance of that little note, A-flat. Here it is, writ large. Well, after that, Beethoven gives us a bit of counterpoint. In other words, one voice coming in in direct imitation of another. It restores the sense of urgency. There's one final amazing little moment in this movement where the conundrum, if you like, the riddle that Beethoven has set himself about what A-flat means and what G-sharp means, he comes to the nub of the problem and essentially solves it for us. Here's how he resolves it. The piano's got A-flats going in the right hand and the left hand, and then at a certain point the left hand moves up to E-natural and what was A-flat, same note still above it, becomes G-sharp, and we've got a nice E major tonality, if you're with me. Have a listen. Here's A-flat. E major. lovely burst of E major, the tonality of the slow movement, just gently brought back to mind. Well, instead of a full cadenza in this final movement, we get instead a lead-in, just a kind of a shorter little burst of soloisticness from the piano, and then a jaunty up-tempo conclusion. Again, the idea is one inspired by Mozart. Looking back once more at Mozart's C minor concerto, his last movement, that whole movement has been in simple duple time, that is, Two beats to the bar with each beat divided into two, a sense of one and two and one and two and. When he gets to his coda, he now employs the time signature six, eight. In other words, still two in a bar, but each beat now divided into threes. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. It's immediately, you can hear it, more lilty, more dance-like.
Beethoven takes the idea of a jaunty 6-8 texture and also ups the ante further by forcing the music into the major. Remember, we've been pretty much in C minor again through this movement. So now, C major. It's a brilliant way of trumping the already earthy jauntiness of the movement as a whole. And another thing, all this equivocation that we've been exploring between uh, A-flat and G-sharp is finally, at long last, completely dispelled here. Just listen to how the piano stops softly at the end of the lead-in, which just precedes the presto we just started. You end up on a G at the top of that. Then the G turns to G-sharp. And that's the upbeat to the A. So, now, there is no confusion. G-sharp must rise to A. Forget about A-flats altogether. It is G-sharp. It rises to A in a C major that can now stand its ground. It's like the poison has gone. So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope I've made clear how much Beethoven took Mozart's model, the constant process of symphonic development within a concerto, and ran with it. Again, with very carefully selected and complementary themes. Things were never to be as formulaic as the original concerto Ritonello form had laid down. Beethoven constantly maintains unity and creates at the same time a more heroic, romantic type of concerto, entirely appropriate to his time. The future of the romantic concerto in the hands of composers such as Brahms was clear. Any questions? I just wonder um, how much access Beethoven would have to Mozart's music. Would he see the scores? Would he go to concerts? Certainly as a pianist, and Beethoven was a very fine pianist, he performed Mozart's concertos many, many, many times, certainly in the early part of his life and career. And he worshipped so much of what Mozart stood for. Now, I think it's true, and it's fair to take on board the fact that he made subsequent slightly more disparaging remarks about Mozart or elements of perhaps the legacy that Mozart had left or the, perhaps the kind of uh, the tremendous sort of uh, rarefied sense of, of bliss that people afforded him in the years after his death, certainly people whose opinions counted in the musical world. That being said, Beethoven couldn't have been Beethoven without the model that Mozart set him. Another question? Do you think music over time has evolved or devolved since, say, Mozart? You think now music in modern day is as classic as it was 200 years ago? Well, do I think that music now has yeah. as much value as it did then? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I smell a barbed question. Uh, in my view, there are only two sorts of music. There's great music and there's terrible music. It's up to you which you think falls into which category. For me, the basic raison d'etre, the basic rule of thumb, the way I live my life is that I'm open-hearted to all musics of all sorts and all sorts of music of all sorts speaks to me in different times, in different contexts, in different situations. 
The key is never to be closed to anything. As to whether Radiohead are as talented as Mozart, I think possibly not. But they're brilliant nonetheless. Does that answer your question? No. <laughs> Maybe we can meet afterwards. <laughs> Time for one more, ladies and gentlemen. Do you think when you're talking about the different parts of the concerto and the different themes, um, and they, they reveal themselves to be more complex, um, where do you think Beethoven would have started? Would he start with the first theme, or would he start with the development and work around that to make it more sim simplified? Well, it's very clear from Beethoven's sketches, and we're very fortunate that he made so many. He was voluminous in his uh, desire, his need for his process, core process, to write down everything that occurred to him. And then slowly through the process of working, reworking, reworking, distilling ideas, he ended up with a theme or a texture or some piece of kind of harmonic modulation that he was truly comfortable with. So we know from that fact alone that he did always start with his primary material. He started with what would eventually be his first and second subjects, his two main themes. Then, of course, it's a constant process of delight for Beethoven in how he develops, alters, sometimes changes out of all recognition, elements within those two groups of melody. So you can chart the process through. And in fact, if you're ever in London, you should go to the British, British Library, where they've got the facsimiles of his six symphony manuscripts, which are an amazing document chronicling every stage of his development. Well, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, together with pianist Andrew Zielinski and the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, we will now perform for you Beethoven's third piano concerto.